welcome to another episode of The Grilling Truth. I'm your host, Mike Goodpaster. And once again, as always, I would like to welcome in my co-host, Matt Andrews-Cabbage. How you doing tonight, Matt? It's a great night. Glad to be here. Always good to talk with another legend. Well, before we get to our next guest, let me remind people that on June 25th, we will have former Kansas City Chiefs running back Christian Okoye on the show. You won't want to miss that one. Our guest tonight played an integral part on the Cincinnati Bengals Super Bowl 16 team. Help me welcome to the show, M.L. Harris. How you doing tonight, M.L.? Doing well. How are you doing tonight? Oh, we're doing great. Anytime we can talk to a Cincinnati Bengal, it's a great thing. Isn't that right, Matt? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I am, uh, I'm always uh, happy to make Mike happy. Well, I mean, we have so many 49ers on the show that it gets kind of sickening <laughs> after a while. But <laughs> Yeah, he can't take it, so we got to get a Bengal on once in a while and make him happy. Yeah, well, you got to have a Bengal, greatest franchise in NFL history. All right, let's go ahead and get started before Matt responds to that. Um, let's just <laughs> this start is what off. happens, ML. See, and he just yeah. interrupted me because he got yeah. upset, ML. Here we go. <laughs> uh, hey, ML, just tell us a little bit about your childhood, when you started playing football, and who were some of your biggest influences as a child? Well, you know, I really didn't get a chance to start playing uh football until I was in the 10th grade. My mother wouldn't let me play uh, football. They didn't want me to get hurt. Uh, she thought it was uh, too rough of a game, and I finally uh, talked to her and allowed me to play uh, in the 10th grade, and, you know, uh, I was pretty excited. You know, what, uh, what I experienced when I was younger, uh, I really believed that you know, God deposited in my heart that I was going to play in the National Football League. And, you know, I had to hold on to that until 10th grade, you know, until I got to the 10th grade to be even begin to play. You know, so it was a long – it's been a long journey. <laughs> well, uh, did you have any influences, high school coach, anything like that, when you started playing in the 10th grade? Well, when I started playing in the 10th grade um, – you know, high school, you know, I didn't really uh, know uh, what I was supposed to do. I knew uh, I enjoyed hitting, you know, so I was a very physical person. And, you know, of course, I was 6'5 and 220, so, you know, uh, I was bigger than a lot of the kids. Uh, I was faster than a lot of the kids. And, um, you know, the coach there was, uh, he really didn't know where to play me. Uh, one of the first places I played on offense was uh, running back. And on defense, he had a middle linebacker, you know. So he didn't really know where to put me. He just, you know, I'm bigger than the offensive line <laughs> the whole bit. So it was, a, it was an interesting first year. So, ML, uh, you went to Kansas State. Uh, what made you uh, choose Kansas State over other universities? Well, I wanted to go to a school that was playing against a lot of tough competition. You know, week in and week out, I wanted to see how good I really was. Uh, so uh, I got that opportunity at Kansas State. I mean, I had a lot of uh, offers from other schools, you know, major schools, but I just didn't want to play on those teams. I wanted to play against them. And so I got an opportunity to do that. And so – uh, I began to see how tough the game really could be week in and week out. 
All right. Um, Kansas State, I mean, do you have any memories that really stand out or memorable games from your college career? Well, <laughs> I remember one week we was given to play Oklahoma, and Joe Washington was terrorizing everybody on kickoff returns and running back in the running back position. And I was playing free safety, believe it or not. I went to Kansas State as a free safety. And uh, they had a, I had an interview, and uh, they asked me uh, about Joe Washington. I said, well, the problem with most people not being able to tackle Joe Washington, they don't break down and rip up on him. And uh, I said, I'm going to break down and rip up on Joe Washington. He's not going to be able to do the things that he's doing to other people, to me. Um, <laughs> that week, the head coach of our team, decided he wanted to play me on offense at the running back spot. <laughs> I, said, I, told him, I said, you can't do that. I just finished talking stuff in the newspaper, and I, they'll kill me. You can't do that, you know. And he put me on offense, and um, it didn't It didn't go too well. I mean, they were fired up, and they was coming at me with everything. And uh, we didn't win the game, of course, uh we did lose, but I did have a chance uh, on the punt team. Uh, we punted to Oklahoma, and Joe was back to receive. And um, I, I was one of the guys coming down hard on him, and I just knew I was getting ready to blast him. And he did something very interesting, and i never seen it done by anybody else. Um, he, When he caught the ball, he began to backpedal. And I said, what is this guy doing? He backpedaled until he uh, was able to get our lanes out of proportion, and then he made his move up the field. And I, I'm telling you, I never seen anything like it. He made me miss him. I was one on one with him, and I mean, all I tackled was grass, and uh, I didn't break down and rip up on him like I thought I was going to be able to do. And that was my one chance. And I just, I just, I was, mar I marveled. I mean, this guy was great in my opinion. Um, after college, um, uh, being undrafted, you, you you went to the CFL, uh, professional football, and uh, you had you were there for, it uh, looks like, four years. Uh, I wanted to Correct. Go, uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like. Well, it was great. Uh, the CFL was a lot of fun. Um, it, it was a, a change in what I was used to because, you know, you have uh, the – longer field and a wider field, and there was an extra guy on the field. Uh, you was playing with 12 guys on the field instead of 11, you know, so that was quite different. And then people were able to run towards the line of scrimmage. Uh, you can have, you know, I think it was five guys in motion at one time, and, it, you know, it just it looked crazy, but it was fun. Um, you know, I remember running. I remember I uh, – got a pass and I ran for 70 yards and didn't score and I couldn't understand I, said, I was running forever I said how is this man I ran 70 yards and still and 30 yards away right yes I'm like what in the world man you know so it was it was fun though you know a lot of fun fast moving game um it wasn't as business like as the National Football League uh, but uh, it was a great experience. Um, met a lot of awesome people. Uh, played in the backfield with Terry Metcalf, and um, 
and Chuck Ely and, you know, different na- names that you don't hear anymore. So, Yeah, Terry, Terry McGrath is a great player. Yeah. Right. I did not know he went to the CSL. Yeah, we played together in Toronto. I played with Anthony Davis. I ran I was in the backfield with Anthony Davis. Uh, you know, I just it was just it was great. We had a lot of uh great players up there. Yeah, you had to play against Warren Moon too. He that's when Warren Moon was tearing it up I think he started right. there in seventy eight or seventy nine. Right. right, he did. He was terrorizing us, you know. Uh <laughs> Yeah, he did a great job up there. It was, you know, the field just was made perfectly for him, you know. Well, and and you go ahead. Go ahead. You had to put the ball in the air because you know you only had three downs to make a first down. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's a different game, and uh, like I said, it right. was exciting and fast moving. Well, I know your last year in Toronto, I believe your head coach was Forrest Gregg. I'm a Bengals fan. Mm-hmm. All Bengals fans love Forrest Gregg. Maybe tell us a little bit about Forrest Gregg. And I know you came to Cincinnati with Forrest at the same time. Just tell us a little bit about the transition from the CFL to the NFL also. Well, you know, um, Forrest Gregg is a man's man. He's the kind of guy that you love playing for. I mean, he was disciplinarian, and but yet still – uh, you were able to talk. You were able to express your uh, feelings. You was able to uh, uh, talk to him about what was going on on the field and things like that. He wanted to hear that. He wanted the input. You know, uh, he was he was a great uh, coach for me. Uh, he understood me, understood my temperament. Um, the transition from the CFL to the NFL, uh, the, the, the only difference I noticed it wasn't the plane. It was the business end of things. The National Football League was more business uh, orientated than the CFL. And, um, you know, they they didn't play. You know, uh, you couldn't do the job. They had somebody waiting to take your place. You know. So, so in, uh, in, ni- in 1980, the Bengals didn't uh, make the playoffs. Following year, obviously, the '81 season was one of the most successful in franchise history. What was it that turned the '80 season, the '80 Bengals, into the '81 Bengals that we remember? Well, what I remember is this: you know, before the season even started, we was in training camp, and the first morning that we were before breakfast, it was about 15 of us that met in a room. It was 15 guys who had a relationship with the Lord. And we met in a room uh, prior to breakfast to have a Bible study. In that Bible study, uh, we uh, our first lesson was uh, from the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And be not and be no be not transformed, and be be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that stuck with us, and we uh, became living sacrifices. We became uh, tight knit 
uh, group of guys. We were influenced. We would influence our teammates. Our, you know, we were just we just bonded, and it, it, it caught fire on uh, with the whole team, and um, uh, we just believed that we could go further than we did last year, the year before, and that uh, our focus became. And we did one game at a time, believe it or not. And uh, as we were going along, in fact, we started our season off with, uh, I believe it was Seattle, and they were beating us 21 to nothing at halftime. And uh, Pat McAnally came up to me and said, Emil, are we going to win? And I looked at Pat, and I was like kind of dumbfounded that he would ask me that. You know, and I looked, and I said, (laughs) of course we're going to win. Pat, of course we're going to win. He said, okay, that's all I wanted to know. And he walked away. And I turned and I looked at Archie. I said, Archie, begin to praise God. Don't don't ask him for anything. Just begin to praise him. And uh, that game got turned around, and uh, we came back and beat Seattle. And it was just a phenomenal year. We had just a great time playing and uh being with each other on and off of the field. It was just we we had that camaraderie. We had that family feeling. Yeah, I mean, I remember being around here then. I was only like 12 or 13 years old, but I remember the city went absolutely crazy for you guys by about probably week three or four. I mean, what was it like to be in a city where, I mean, let's face it, 1981, the Cincinnati Bengals had made the playoffs in 70, 73, 75, but they never won a playoff game. You always were the little sister to Pittsburgh, to Oakland, teams like that. I mean, what was it like to be around the city? And then on top of that, was there that one game during that season where you realized, hey, we could actually win a championship? Uh, Well, I don't think it was any one game that made us realize that. Um, You know, I I can tell you a story that took place. prior to me coming to Cincinnati. Um, I I was in Toronto. uh, uh, Before I left Toronto to come to Cincinnati, I was up there, and I still was under contract. I had two years left on my contract. And I began to pray, and I asked God for uh, to be able to come back and play in the States and that I would like to be on a winning team and I would like to play in a Super Bowl. And that was my prayer. And I got a call from about five teams, and Cincinnati wasn't even on the radar yet. They haven't contacted me or any of that. And then um, I was about to sign with Minnesota, and I got a telegraph from Cincinnati asking me not to sign with anyone until I gave them a chance to talk to me. And so I did. I held off, and I went down to Cincinnati and talked with them, and met Paul Brown for the first time and Mike Brown, and and we had a good meeting. And uh, I was talking with Coach Greg, and, um, and I loved him so much. You know, I was like, man, uh, the Browns, uh, Mike Brown and them didn't offer me the great contract like Minnesota was offering, but I knew Forrest Greg. I knew his system, and I wanted to – be able to play close to home. And so I went with Cincinnati. And that first year, as you said, you know, we did not uh, go, get into a playoff. And I went back on my knees and I said, Lord, this has been a mistake. 
you know, we're supposed to be going to the Super Bowl. And this actually happened. I'm doing this, right? And uh, and finally uh, the next season comes and we went into the next season with a different attitude. Uh, like I said, there was 15 guys in a, a room and we really was focusing God made God our number one. And that's what really turned things around for us. And we really believed at that point in time we were going to go to a Super Bowl. You know, at that point in time, even before we played a game, um, that group of guys knew um, in their, in our hearts we knew we were we were going. I was believing it anyways, and I was talking it up the first year I got there. So, and they looked at me like I was crazy because it just came off a two and fourteen or something like that uh, season. But that's what transpired for us, and. Um, when we got about midway through the season, uh, it really became real clear to us because we weren't making a lot of mistakes. Our turnover uh, ratio was low, and uh, we were recovering uh, turnovers or causing turnovers for a, a lot of other teams. And, you know, things were just going really well for us. So we knew that we had a chance to get into the Super Bowl. So we were not looking to get into the Super Bowl, we were looking to get home field advantage. We knew if we got home field advantage, we would go to the Super Bowl. Right. And you mentioned, uh, you know, you got the chance to meet uh, the legendary Paul Brown. Uh, what was he like? I mean, he's such an, he's such an icon for the history of the NFL, such an innovator. What was it like to uh, to meet him and to be around him? You know, uh, I had heard so much about him, and I really didn't believe any of the things I heard because the things that I was hearing about him were so far-fetched that, you know, who does things like that, you know? Um, and when I met him, he, he was sitting across the table from me. He was talking to me about – he wasn't talking to me about football. He was talking to me about life. And I'm like, huh, <laughs> okay. And then he began to talk to me about football, and um, he said to me, he, one of the things he said to me, uh, he said, ML, if when you sign a contract, don't do like so many players. Buy yourself a home. You know, buy yourself a home. Let that be the first thing you do. This is the conversation I was having with him. I'm sitting over there wondering, what is, what the world, when are we going to? Talk about what we're going to do here, you know, and that was my first conversation with him, and it was awesome, and he was just giving me advice and stuff like that, and then finally we just got down to business and started talking uh, about what he wanted to see here or see in Cincinnati, you know, but um, meeting him, I just I just admired, I, like I said, I admired the Brown family. They did just their business, and they took care of business the way they wanted to take care of business. Uh, well, that brings us to one of my favorite moments, the 1981 playoffs. I mean, you guys played one of the most underrated great playoff games, I think, against the Buffalo Bills where you end up winning the 28-21. Then you go and play the San Diego Chargers. The Chargers showed up here. It was 59 degrees below zero. And it's also my mem most memorable moment with watching you was catching the touchdown pass that basically sealed the game. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that game? 
Yeah, it was a it was a very cold week. Uh, you know, as we as you well know, we did not have a dome. We did not have yeah. a dome to go inside and play, so we practiced all week <laughs> long outside. And I had on two pair of gloves. Uh, I had a thin pair of gloves on, and then I had street gloves on. And I taped the street gloves to my hands, and I was practice that way. And Force Greg one day walked up to me and said, ML, why you have those gloves on? Are you going to play in those gloves? I said, most definitely, Coach, I'm going to play in these gloves. And he says, listen, uh, you better not drop the ball. And I said, oh, I won't. I won't drop the ball. Then I became very nervous. And I'm saying, if I drop this ball, man, I'll probably <laughs> get a roadmap and an apple out of here, you know. But, uh, when the game came, I mean, it was we, it was so much hype going on, and we were so excited and fired up, and we didn't even notice the cold originally uh, because we were so amped. And um, when uh, it was time to play the game and we're playing and we're in the huddle and Kenny Anderson calls to play and he looks at me and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh, he just called my number. <laughs> Uh, so it was a 10-yard option play, and when I ran the route, turned around, the ball was already coming. It was almost at my face mask, and I reached up and grabbed the ball for the touchdown, and, and I just it, the place just erupted, you know, and it was just, just a fantastic game. Yes, it was. One of my favorites. Uh, the one thing that irritates me about that game, and you see it on NFL films all the time, they talk about the 81 Chargers. And I always hear people say that, you know, the Bengals beat them because of the weather. And the thing that really irritates me about that is nobody realizes that two months before that or six weeks before that, the Bengals beat them even worse than that in San Diego in 85-degree weather in the sun, 40-17. to 17. So I just wanted to bring that up because that always irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Bengals were a superior team, had a better defense and offense, I think. So uh, let me remind listeners right now, we're talking to former Cincinnati Bengal M.L. Harris, part of the Super Bowl 16 team here on the Grueling Truth. Uh, Matt? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> want to get to uh, the game that I know Mike does not really want to talk about. But, I don't even know uh, why we would obviously. <laughs> but it had to be such a thrill uh, for you just two years into your NFL career and there you are playing in the Super Bowl what was it like to step on the field for Super Bowl 16 and, and, and Mike I'll let you uh, ask more questions about that well you know um, going to the Super Bowl um was exciting. The place that we played wasn't. <laughs> you know, it's not a Super Bowl. I couldn't understand why you play a Super Bowl in Pontiac or not. I think it was Detroit, like 12 Michigan. degrees that day, too. Yeah, it was right. very cold still outside, but we were inside. And that was the other thing that, that bothered me. How do you play a Super Bowl game in a dome? You know, I mean, this should be outside in good weather or whatever, you know, even cold weather would be better than being in a dome. Uh, but that's one of the things I try to understand. But the, the good news about the whole thing was we were there. And um, all week long we, it was building up to that day. And as we stood in that tunnel waiting to come out as a team, uh, 
uh, and then the 49ers was out. They were waiting to come out as a team, and we both just hit the field at the same time, and the place erupted. It was so deafening that you staggered, you know, trying to keep your balance because your equilibrium was off, you know, and it was just deafening. And um, we get over to the sideline before the game starts, and uh, I look down, and there's Diana Ross, who sang the national anthem. You know, it was, I'm like, wow, wow, this is great. This is great. And all you can see is orange and, and that red color, uh, <laughs> whatever that color was. And that's all you can see out there. And then you have a, you win the kickoff uh, and, and you fumble it. You start your Super Bowl game doing something that you had few fumbles all year long, and we started off with a fumble. And San Francisco recovered. We didn't fumble once on that play. We fumbled twice. We recovered and fumbled again. And I'm like, whoa, that's not a way to start the Super Bowl. And the 49ers recovered, and they scored from that. That's how our Super Bowl game started. And let's say, you know, we're down 21 points at halftime. And we had a group of guys going to the locker room saying, hey, hey, guys, hold up. This is not who we are. And, um, you know, I, we got together, that same group of guys who was uh, in that room, and we got together, and we said we left God in the locker room. We got we can't do this, and so we went out and made a game of it, and uh, it, it turned out to be a great game. And um, but you know we continue to make some mistakes. We on the goal line, we had several uh, blown assignments, um, and San Francisco uh, capitalized from it and stopped us from getting in and the end zone. And uh, that happened several times, and that was the ball game pretty much. Well, the Super Bowl sixteen. I don't have too many other questions. I mean, we all know that the better <laughs> team did not win that game, but those things happen sometimes. But That's And right. they had to put That's it right. in a dome because there's no way the Niners could have taken the weather down here. Anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> but real quick, I want to remind people the first 30 minutes of this show is live. we got about two and a half minutes left of that, and then it will be 15 minutes of archive time, which at the top of the hour, 12 o'clock, you can actually listen to the rest of the show. Um, that leads me to this. 1982, the Bengals had a really good season, ran into a really hot New York Jet team, Freeman McNeil, 83 mm-hmm. season came. I know there were some problems with Pete Johnson. Had a few injuries. Team went, I think, 7-9. and nine. Um, mm-hmm. Had number one defense, though. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the season, Coach Greg and Linda Infante, I believe, went with him to Green Bay. What was the feeling on the team when Coach Greg left right at the end of that season? Well, we was kind of dumbfounded, you know, um, that he would even be leaving. Um, uh, I really didn't, uh, we didn't understand, uh, why that was taking place. Um, but then, you know, rumors, you know, come, uh, came about and, you know, something had something to do with, uh, 
you know, the Browns and uh, control of the team. <laughs> you know, so that'll happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, fourth grade. You know, he wasn't no, he was no one's puppet, and he's going to run his team the way he believes the team should be ran. So they parted ways, and uh, that was uh, uh, a sad moment for me uh, because here's uh, uh, my favorite coach uh, that I've ever played for. And um, we were doing some good things, and and uh, his his Forrest Greg leaves, and Lindy Infante leaves, and Lindy Infante was a genius offensively. I mean, this guy just he didn't have to wait till halftime to make adjustments, and we made adjustments on the run, you know, and that's why we were so effective uh, because we was able to quickly make adjustments offensively and defensively. You know, so it was heart it was heart wrenching uh to uh lose those two uh coaches. Um so, you know, that did do yeah, something. Yeah, I mean Lindy Infante was one that we had Don Mikowski on the show about two months ago and Mikowski mm-hmm. said the exact same thing about Coach Infante and what a great coach he was. Definitely, definitely was a great coach. I mean, I I've never seen anyone Said, you know, was able to make the adjustment so quick that even the defense didn't understand and know what was going on, what's hitting them. And, you know, he, his his philosophy was no matter what they do, they're wrong. You know, and it was so. You know, the only ones who could mess it up was us. Now, you played alongside um, one of uh... – and Mike and I agree on this, that one of the most underrated tight ends uh, in the history of the NFL, Dan Ross. Uh, what was it like oh, to yeah. uh, play alongside of him and uh, kind of a teammate was he? Dan was a great teammate. I mean, we were like, when Dan was in the game, uh, I was his eyes on the sideline. When I was in the game, he was my eyes on the sideline. When we was both on the field, we were definitely communicating with each other, who's doing what on what side, and then can you come in and call a play? And we would tell each other, hey, watch, he's doing this right now, you know, so, you know, be heads up, that type of thing. You know, we didn't have that uh, competitiveness against each other. Uh, we were on the same team and, um, you know, was looking for the same purpose, you know, to win some games. And uh, he was a great teammate. All right, um, the 1983 season ended, and I think Dan Ross left for, I believe it was the Boston Breakers in the USFL. Yeah. Um, he had a coaching overhaul. Yeah. Sam Weiss took over, came in. Everything was a little bit different. The 84 season started off horribly, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the season, everything seemed to click. And actually, it was one of my favorite teams because they came out of nowhere. I think you guys started off like 2-6, and 2-7, and seven, ended up 8-8. Eight and eight. If it wasn't for the Raiders, you know, blowing the game against the Steelers or us blowing the lead against, once again, the 49ers around week 10, I think that team mm-hmm. would have made the playoffs and had a chance to make a run. What are some of your recollections about that season and what turned that season around midway through? You know, I don't really remember that season very well. <laughs> I don't remember a lot about that season. I don't know why I have such a block in my mind. Uh, uh, it could be that uh, – you know, um, when Coach Weiss was a different 
he was he had a different philosophy, a different way of doing things than um, Coach Greg, and uh, it was for us it was a difficult time adjusting to his style of coaching. You know, um, uh, more or less, uh, Mike Brown was doing more of the coaching. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we had a hard time making the adjustments and stuff like that. You know. Um, but there was a, a a time where we we began to uh, reestablish ourselves and and jail and um, uh, play some uh, good team ball. You know, I just remember us uh, once we started winning, uh, we stopped looking at other things that were going on off of the field and in the locker room and in the administrative office and all that other stuff and start putting our minds back on the field and uh, doing the things that needed to be done to be successful. Once again, we fell short, but, you know, um, you know, I, I had some great teammates. I mean, I played on the, on the side of the ball where, you know, uh, Isaac Curtis, you know, world-class sprinter, world-class guy, you know, um, just an elite receiver. Um, who made my job easier, you know. So, you know, I had him on that side of the ball. And there was times where I was playing on the side with Anthony Munoz and uh, Mike Wilson, you know, who was the other uh, tackle uh, on the right side of the ball and, you know, just the strong side. And it was just and, um, Max Montoya. And these some great guys, you know, off of the field, they're great guys. You know, classy yeah. guys. You know, you know. So uh, we had a classy squad of individuals. You know that you weren't reading a lot about off of the field. We did a lot of community services. Uh, we were doing all kind of great things, and so you know, that's this. It was a great team. Yeah, you you definitely. Uh, I was thinking about. Uh, you know, who you would have been playing next to, you know, the great Anthony Munoz and has had, you know, like you said, Max Montoya and a lot of great uh, guys on that offense. And, uh, you know, you, you end your career, um, you know, but uh, as you were talking about before, you were you were looking to uh, find a way to go into uh, the things you wanted to do after football and so tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing now and uh, also your uh, academy that you have going. Well, you know, I'm in full-time ministry. Um, uh, uh, when I was with Cincinnati, I started working with young men and um, teenagers, and I was going in and out of the schools and, you know, talking with the kids, troubleshooting and doing different things like that and trying to encourage young people and to be successful and, and to uh, – uh, working as hard as they could and and having purpose for life, purpose in life, and those sort of things. Uh, now I am a senior pastor of New Life uh, Outreach Christian Center uh, here in uh, Roseburg, Ohio. Uh, you know we have a all boys academy um, called the ML Here's All Boys Academy. Uh, it's a year round school. Um, we do a lot of mentoring of uh, young males. My focus is, uh, you know, high school uh, kids, even though a lot of times we get kids who are not in high school, middle school, and stuff like that. Um, but 
I like the ninth to the twelfth graders. I prefer the ninth graders, you know, just coming into high school and and really working with them and and trying to keep them around for uh, the, the four years and and watch them grow and develop. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's uh, I'm, I'm living the life right now. I'm doing some things that uh, really pulled me from football uh, that I wanted to do more than I wanted to continue to play football. And that's uh, to uh, tell people about Jesus, you know, uh, help young men to reach their destiny on time, to help focus, to get them focused. Um, you know, the... It's a boarding school, you know, the the young people, uh, some of them live with us during the course of time, and um, and then, you know, we have other homes that they would live in. Uh, we're trying to, right now, we're working very diligently in, uh, on developing some uh, dormitories uh, to be able to house the young people um, uh, with, uh, with this year-round uh mentorship program and school that we have, the academy that we have. So uh, we're really um, excited about this coming up year and to see what God's going to do. Well, I mean, that was the thing that impressed me because I'm not going to lie. I mean, I loved you and Dan Ross's tight ends when I was younger. Loved to watch you guys play. Saw you on Facebook, sent your friend request. And then the thing that really pushed me to want to have you on the show was when I when I read what you were doing with the ML Harris Boys Academy, and I mean, if we had more athletes that when they retired got into stuff like that instead of getting into trouble, it would make a huge difference in this world. And I mean, mm-hmm. I want to commend you on everything you've done there. Um, is there a website anybody can get a hold of if they want to look into it? Uh, most definitely. Uh, you know, if if you was to go to uh... New Life School of X, not New Life School of X, I'm sorry, New Life Outreach Christian Center uh, .org, you would be able to see all the different things that we're doing. Uh, the All Boys Academy uh, is on there. You can click on the All Boys Academy to bring it up, um, and you can see that and also the other things that we're doing. Well, we and are it, it, a... Uh, you got any? You got any final question, Matt? We got about four minutes left. No, go ahead. I uh, I think that's. I'd like to just. I'll, you know, I'll just say one thing though. Um, I'd like to just piggyback off of what Mike said as well. I mean, that is tremendous what you're doing, uh, influencing uh, young young people. You reach young people. You can. You don't have to take. You don't have to take the Bible into the jail, and and try to correct it there. You can. You can develop and 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 shape them while they're young, and that's that's tremendous. Right, amen. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, it was an honor to have you on the show, and I can tell you this: me and Joe Kelly, at the start of the season, are going to do a weekly Bengals show. If you ever want to come on and talk a little Bengals football, you're always more than welcome. Well, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate being on the show too. Hey, it was a pleasure having you. Uh, thank you. All right, take care, ML. All right, you too. All right, thanks. All right, bye-bye. All right, now next week, the 49er fan will be running the show because the Bengal fan is going to Florida. (laughs) 
while the 49ers stay, fan stays in Green Bay. That's the difference between the two fans. But <laughs> oh boy! But on Tuesday night there will not be a boxing show. But I can tell you this: we are in the works right now setting up Marvis Frazier as one of our boxing guests over the next three or four weeks. Son of former heavyweight legend Joe Frazier, fought Mike Tyson, fought Larry Holmes for the heavyweight championship of the world. Next Thursday, we've got a 49ers show that's going to start this fall, which I I got mixed feelings on that. But since I think that they're probably going to be last in their division, I'm all for it this year, and I'll probably call it and make fun of them. But, Matt, you want to explain what next Thursday's show is going to be? Yeah, um, I talked with uh, a couple weeks ago. We had uh, former 49er running back Dexter Carter on uh, as a guest. Uh, Dexter and I will be uh, doing the uh, 49er uh, uh, version of The Grueling Truth. Uh, We're going to do our first show next Thursday while Mike is out, and then uh, not long after, uh, we'll be doing that every week, uh, probably Monday nights. So we're looking forward to getting started next week. Well, that sounds entertaining. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. It'll be a great show. Dexter was a great guest when we had him on. Was that last week or a week before? We've all kind of running ago, together yeah. now. Yeah, but Dexter was a great guest. I mean, had a lot of stories that you know a lot of people don't hear about. Um, was a great kick returner. I mean, great player at Florida State. So, I mean, it's going to be a great show. That'll be next Thursday night at 11 o'clock Eastern time. And like I said, June 25th, I know that Matt is excited because he plays Super Tecmo Bowl. He tells me about it all the time. He goes and plays tournaments <laughs> and stuff. And, Chris, and yes, he sir. told me a couple weeks ago his dream guest to get on the show is Christian Akoya. And Christian Akoya will be on the show June 25th at 11 o'clock. And, Matt, you're not allowed to ask a bunch of Super Tecmo Bowl questions because this is not going to be a geek show. <laughs> I would probably just have one, but he was actually one of my favorite running backs, too. Uh, so I got lots of Kansas City Chiefs questions for him, too. Yeah, he was a great running back. And I'm, I've never seen anybody 6'1", 260 running a four four forty. No. And I'm really glad I never saw him running at me. <laughs> 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 but... Well, we're about done for this week on The Grueling Truth. Remember, you can follow us on our Facebook group page, The Grueling Truth, which podcasts all of our shows. It has all the articles that Matt and I write for Sports Rants. See how I use proper English there, Matt? I do. (laughs) I had to think about it before I said it. But So follow us on there. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RiverMonster11. Matt says... MTA Scavage. MTA Scavage. So, for, for Matt and I, there I go, I used it correctly again. I'm going to sign off, and Matt will be back next Thursday night with Dexter Carter and the San Francisco 49ers show. You've been listening to The Grueling Truth, where legends speak.